This evening, we're concluding our overview of the New Testament book titled Colossians. And with this as the focus, let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Colossians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul wrote this little epistle in order to help the Christians in Colossae to identify and reject a handful of heresies which were already being introduced in the church there by uh, the middle of the first century. Uh, I'll give you one example. It was found back in chapter 1. That's where Paul addressed the heresies of those who were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there were already those denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And so Paul spent time in the first chapter uh, helping the church there in Colossae to understand uh, the deity of Jesus. And again, in chapter 2, Paul spent even more time presenting the Christians there in Colossae with a clear, concise argument for why we ought to believe in the deity of Jesus. Then in chapter 3, Paul went on to address the heresies of those who were actually calling Christians to start following the rules and the rituals of the Levitical law. And, and I'm guessing that uh, he was dealing with what we now know as the Judaizers who loved to come into churches and attempt to convince the Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised and keep the dietary law and all these sorts of things. They had to go and celebrate the new moons and the festivals and the Sabbaths. And, and Paul spent chapter 3 saying, nope, nope, we don't need to do that. He reminded them that those who trust in Jesus Christ, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, those who trust in Jesus Christ can, are no longer under the law, but instead we should walk in the love of the Lord, which becomes our bond of perfection. Now, here in the final chapter of this letter, we find Paul, he's presenting us with a mixture of discipleship directives coupled together with some final farewells as he takes this time to identify specific leaders who I believe we would do well to follow. And as we make our way through the final chapter of this book, well, it's my hope that we would all recognize the importance of becoming faithful servants who are fulfilling our calling in Christ. Well, with this as the goal, let's consider the final encouragements that Paul presented to the Christians there in Colossae. If you would, uh, look with me here at Colossians chapter 4. We'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul writes, Masters... Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I just want to stop right there because you know, I want to take a moment here to consider the point that Paul was making, especially as, as it you know, pertains to the relationship between what, what he calls bondservants and masters. Now, with this as the focus, we should spend a few minutes considering the arguments of those who insist that the Bible actually condones slavery. That's what they would have us to believe, that the Bible condones slavery. And, and with that, I, I want to take a moment to back up and consider a, a verse that we just kind of glazed over last week. It was back in Colossians chapter 3. It was in verse 22 where Paul declared this. He said, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now, uh, in our study last week, you know, in the context of what we were looking at, we considered how, you know, here in this day and age, it's, it's good for Christians who are employed or Christians who are employers to, to do all things uh, for the, uh, you know, uh, with, with the love of the Lord. Uh, but contextually, as we continue to make our way through this chapter, and as we consider Colossians 4 verse 1, we need to take a moment to consider this, this concept of bondservants and masters, and, and we need to take the time to consider, you know, is this a biblical, you know, endorsement of slavery? 
with that, you know, that we, I should point out that the word bondservants, it's actually found at least 127 times in the New Testament. And while the original Greek word is oftentimes used in reference to the servants of our Savior, yeah, that's right, Christians are called bondservants. The same Greek word, though, in, in this context is actually being used in reference to those who are actually slaves. That's the context here. And it's for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render Colossians 3, verse 22 in this way. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. From this, we can see that Paul here is challenging uh, the Christians there in the first century who were enslaved that they needed to serve their masters with sincere obedience. And it's for this reason that there are many skeptics in the world today who are quick to insist that, see, Paul condones the cruelties of slavery. The Bible's horrible. It condones slavery. And they just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, in order to address this accusation, it's important for us to remember, first of all, that the book of Colossians was written in the middle of the first century AD. We have to get our mind around that. It's not being written in the 21st century. It was written in the first century AD. And what this means that he, is that he was writing at a time when slaves actually made up 10 to almost 20% of the population there in the Roman Empire. Why is that? Well, because it was commonplace. Because it was culturally acceptable. And while it might be hard to imagine, slavery was an accepted practice there in the ancient world. Now, at this point in time in the 21st century, we would look back on that and think, what were they thinking? It's horrible. And yet, in the day that Paul was writing, slavery was a common practice. Should Paul just ignore slavery? Should he ignore slaves? Should he not address slavery at all? Or should he provide Christian direction for Christian slaves? With these questions in mind, uh, it, it might help you to know that there were not only slaves in the Roman Empire there in the first century, but slavery actually occurred in civilizations as old as uh, Sumer, uh, as well as in almost every other ancient uh, civilization, including Egypt. Uh, if you've made your way through the Old Testament, you know the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt at one point in time. There were slaves in Nubia. There have been slaves in China, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Carthage, and India. Yeah, all, all of these ancient uh, civilizations held and owned slaves at some point in time. Not only that, but there's also been slavery in Africa, as well as here in the Americas. You, you know, I mean, when we see the commercial of the weeping Native American and, and think, oh, they were all just peaceful. and everything. No, no, they were warring and, and fighting amongst one another and enslaving one another here in the Americas. Long before the transatlantic slave trade ever began, there was slavery happening here in America. Those who say, well, you know, pre-Columbian America never had slave. No, yeah, there was slavery. Now, we don't have time to explore the different forms of slavery that have occurred throughout, you know, the history of the world. But to argue that Paul was condoning slavery just because he addresses slaves, well, that's, you know, on, a, on the face, just ridiculous. Paul wasn't condoning slavery, and to the contrary, he actually encouraged those who could to go ahead and gain their freedom. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There, Paul declares, were you called while a slave? Or in other words, did you become a Christian when you were a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. 
For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Without debate, Paul was a man who wanted to see every slave being freed. And he said, if you, if you can be made freed, you know, go for it. At the same time, Paul was a man who realized that he himself wasn't able to end the slavery that was t- taking place there in ancient Rome. Therefore, he gave advice to slaves, and, and as he should have, as a Christian leader. And he encouraged every slave to demonstrate the love of the Lord in the way that they served their masters. At the same time, it's here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul then challenges every slave owner by declaring this. He says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, again, this is not an endorsement of slavery. No, instead, this is Paul dealing with the culture of his time as he challenges every slave owner to be just and fair in the way they treat their slaves. And he reminds them, hey, there's coming a day when you're going to stand before the true master and you're going to give an account to him. So think about that before you go and abuse someone under your authority. As we consider the arguments of those who insist that the, you know, the Bible endorses the atrocities of slavery, I can't help but to wonder what inspired the Christian abolitionists of the 19th century to take a stand against the chattel slavery which was taking place here in America. You know, as they read through the Bible, what led them to think that, oh, the Bible's against you know, slavery of this nature? Were there specific scriptures that led them to think that way? Why did Christian leaders like Charles Finney and Angelina Grimke, why did they see the Bible as their basis for believing that slavery, the slavery that was happening here in America, was in fact a sin? Because that's that's what they called it. And if you go back and you look at their arguments, they were pulling scriptures out and saying, hey, here's what the Bible says, therefore, this chattel slavery happening here in America is sin. Listen, those who take the time to consider the biblical arguments made by the Christian abolitionists of the 19th century, if you'll go and look look at their writings, you'll quickly discover that the Bible in no way condones slavery. And to the contrary, a a, a proper understanding of the Bible will lead a person to see that the Lord Jesus came to set the captives free. And, And this freedom is spiritual, emotional, and physical. That's what the Lord Jesus came to do, to to set the captives free. And so therefore, the Christian abolitionists there in the 19th century were right to stand against slavery and the basis of their arguments, it was the Bible. That being the case, we would all do well to correct those who insist that the Bible condones slavery and therefore the Bible is bad. It was leaders who were reading the Bible that helped bring slavery in America to an end. And so we should challenge those who are twisting the scriptures with this argument by reminding them about those Christian abolitionists of the 19th century who helped to bring an end to slavery here in America by appealing to the Bible as they fought for the freedom of every slave. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that the Lord is calling every Christian to become his servants. That's right, the Lord wants us to become his servants. And, and, and those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have become the bondservants of our Savior, whether you recognize that or not. With that being the case, we would all do well to become those bondservants who are you know, willing to suffer chains in Christ so that others might be set free. 
In order to grasp my point, let's consider Paul's example, which is found here in Colossians chapter 4. If you would, let's pick up our study of Colossians 4, beginning at verse 2. Here Paul challenges every Christian to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, here in these verses, we're reminded of the fact that Paul was actually in prison when he penned this epistle. Paul was writing this letter from prison. And it's important for us to remember that Paul wasn't in prison because he was some sort of lawbreaker. He wasn't a criminal who who needed to be confined. No, instead, Paul was in prison because of his persecutors. His persecutors just wanted to silence his voice. And yet, even in chains, Paul was asking the church to pray for him so that he could continue to share the gospel of grace as he should. This reminds me of the prayer request that Paul presented in Ephesians chapter 6. It's there where he asks the Christians in Ephesus to pray that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Rather than complaining about his unjust imprisonment, Paul instead asked the other Christians to pray for him. He asked for prayer so that he might have the boldness to continue preaching to those who had imprisoned him. And in light of his example, you know, I encourage every Christian to to pray for the boldness that we need. Listen, if Paul prayed for boldness and Paul asked for others to pray for him so that he could be bold, uh, no doubt we need to pray for boldness. And we ought to be praying for boldness and praying for the boldness of one another so that we all might become those believers who are willing to suffer persecution so that some might be set free by faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be praying for boldness so that we can stand in the face of persecution and preach the gospel of grace. With this as the goal, let's consider the advice that Paul presents to the Christians there in Colossae. If you would, let's turn our attention back to Colossians chapter 4. Let's pick up our study there at verse 5. Here Paul declares, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging his audience to be wise in the way that we interact with unbelievers. We need to be wise in the way that we walk with those who are outside. That's a reference to unbelievers. And the reason we need to be wise about this is because we need to redeem the time that we have. We all have a limited amount of time. Whether we're talking about the time we have every day or the years that we have, We all have limited time. Therefore, we need to be wise in the ways that we interact with unbelievers. And we need to redeem that time by making the most of every opportunity to preach the gospel to those who don't yet believe. And we need to let our speech be seasoned with grace. And, 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 and we need to, you know, in other words, rather than speaking harshly, rather than presenting the gospel in a, in a condemning sort of way, Paul encourages us to present the gospel of grace with gentleness and respect as the Spirit of God guides us with life-filled words. I like the way that Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 10. It's here where he declares, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I don't know about you, but I'm filled with great comfort as I read these, these words. You know, the, the, it's comforting to know that the spirit of the living God is here to help me to, to say the right things when those opportunities arise. That, that I don't have to somehow, you know, figure it all out in my mind. Now, now listen, we ought to be studying to show ourselves approved, of course. But when the opportunity to share my faith arises, whether it's being, you know, in the middle of persecution or just in the middle of casual conversation, we can trust that the spirit of, of God is going to be here speaking through us if we'll just simply rest by faith in him. He's going to help us to know what to say to those who are asking us the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Therefore, rather than you know, shrinking back and not sharing our faith because we're afraid we won't know what to say, walk by faith. Trust in the Lord. And believe that the spirit of the living God will speak through you, and he will. Let's follow in the footsteps of Paul by becoming the ambassadors of Christ, even if we're in chains. And though our chains are in Christ, we can still help others to escape the spiritual bondage of their fallen flesh. And with this as the goal, I want to consider a few more examples that Paul presents us with here in Colossians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7. Here Paul declares, uh, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's reminding the Christians there in Colossae uh, about the examples of Tychicus and Onesimus. And it's interesting to note that the, the name Tychicus, it actually means fateful, fateful. Wow. I can't help but to wonder, uh, you know, why his parents settled on this name. You, you know, what, what happened when he was born that, that his parents were just kind of like, yeah, that, this is a fateful day here. Such a depressing name. Now, we aren't given any information about why they named this child fateful. I'm guessing that the family suffered some sort of calamity at the time of his birth. We, we don't know for certain. But while it's true that Tychicus grew up being called fateful, Paul here calls him faithful. I love that. Paul calls him faithful. He's a faithful minister who was a fellow slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that Tychicus was a faithful minister, you know, and a fellow servant, you know, Paul, he knew that this was the right disciple to send to deliver this letter to the church there in Colossae. And Paul not only sent this letter by the hand of Tychicus, uh, but he also sent another faithful brother who we see whose name is Onesimus. I always want to call him Onesimus, but, uh, but I guess we'll pronounce it right tonight. His name is Onesimus, and it might interest you to know that Onesimus was a slave who had run away from uh, uh, his believing owner whose name is Philemon. As a matter of fact, if you want to know more about this story, you can go read the book of Philemon. 
But knowing that runaway slaves could be severely punished according to the Roman law, Paul wrote that letter to Philemon and encouraged him to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ rather than like a a runaway slave to be punished. And as we consider the faithful examples of Tychicus and Onesimus, I just want to take this opportunity to point out that, you know, our past, our past can't keep us from becoming faithful bondservants of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again because you really need to get your mind around that. Our past cannot keep us from becoming faithful bondservants of Jesus Christ. It's possible that you had a fateful past. And if so, then I encourage you to become a faithful servant like Tychicus. It's possible that you were once enslaved in some sort of way. Maybe you were enslaved to the bondage of alcohol or drugs or, or, or pornography. It's possible that you lived for many years as a slave to your sinful nature. And if so, then I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Onesimus by fleeing from the bondage by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can become a beloved believer. Your future walk with the Lord does not have to be determined by your past. Because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new for those who trust in the Lord. With that, we should consider the examples of a few more men found here in Colossians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study at verse 10. Here Paul declares, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, for so many reasons, there are, uh, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's mentioning uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And, and I should point out here that Aristarchus was a Jewish believer from Thessalonica who traveled on, on, with Paul on his third missionary journey. And, and it's here we learn that, that he had been a, faith, uh, a fellow prisoner with Paul. I'm guessing that at some point in time in, in Paul's travels that you know, this guy ended up being arrested with Paul and, and thrown into the pokey. And so he's a fellow prisoner of Paul. Then there's Mark here, the cousin of Barnabas. And, and listen, this is the same Mark who penned the gospel of Mark. At the same time, though, this is also the Mark who had been a disappointment to Paul on his first missionary journey. And this issue actually ended up causing a split between Paul and Barnabas when it came to the second missionary journey. And so there was some debate and division about whether to take Mark. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark. And Paul said, no, he's a flake. You know, and, and so Paul and Barnabas went their, went their own separate ways, and, and, and Mark went on with uh, Barnabas. But now here it is, 12 years later, and Paul here is giving Mark his full endorsement. He had seen growth in Mark's life. He, he had seen him mature uh, as a faithful believer, and so he gave Mark the full endorsement. As for justice, you know, of course, this guy changes his name from Jesus to justice because who wants to be called Jesus after, after just realizing, you know, it's, it's like naming your little, your little daughter Angel, you know? It's just like, oh, well, you know, she's a little angel, you know? But, but will she ever live up to the reality of an angel, you know? It's like, no, you know, will your child ever live up to, to the reality of Jesus Christ? No, <laughs> don't, don't name your boy Jesus, unless you call him Jesus, and that's a whole other thing. But 
But Jesus here changes his name to Justice, you know, because he's probably tired of hearing, you're no Jesus, you know. But uh, (laughs) so he's like, just call me Justice. And, And this is actually the only scripture in the Bible that tells us about this specific believer. What we do know is that Paul here refers to Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice as fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And these three guys had proved to be a comfort to Paul. From this, it seems to me then that those who want to become the faithful servants of our Savior, well, we need to become fellow workers. Just like these three guys were fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and therefore they were a comfort to Paul, we too need to become the fellow workers, working together to accomplish the great commission of Christ. And in this way, we become a comfort to one another. The faithful servants of our Savior will also maintain a fervent zeal for the church that, that we've embraced. And with this in mind, if you would, let's pick up our study of Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to focus your attention there at verse 12. Here Paul declares, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's mentioning four more believers here, including Epaphras, Luke, Demas, and Nymphos. And, and I should remind you here that Paul mentions Epaphras back in the beginning of this book. As a matter of fact, it was back in Colossians chapter 1, it's verse 7. There there Paul reminds his readers that they had learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. From this, it seems to me that Epaphras was the pastor uh, of the church there in Colossae, or at least he was a teaching leader uh, here at this church. And and there in in Colossians 4 verse 12, uh, we find uh, uh, Epaphras... He's greeting the church in Colossae. Uh, you know, chances are he's the guy who came and brought news to Paul. And, and, but here we see that he was always laboring fervently for you in prayer. This guy was fervently praying for the Christians there in Colossae. And he had great zeal for the members of his church. He was filled with zeal for the people he went to church with. And in this, he becomes a good example to us. We also find Luke mentioned, of course, Luke, the beloved physician, was the traveling companion of Paul. Not only that, but he's also the Gentile believer who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, provided us with the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. In this way, we can see the Holy Spirit placing his stamp of approval on Luke and his faithfulness to serve the Lord. Then there's Demas. You know, Demas, like Luke here, is listed as a beloved believer. However, Within the time span of seven years after this letter was written, you know, Demas had become a backslidden believer who was no longer serving the Lord. As a matter of fact, it's in, in his second letter to Timothy where Paul goes on to declare this. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Wow. He's being called a beloved believer here in Colossians 4. Fast forward seven years... He's forsaken Paul because he loved this present world. It was his love for the world 
that led him away from the Lord. In light of this, I can't help but to remember something John said in 1 John chapter 2. It's here where John declares, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Christian, listen, the believers who continue to entertain their lustful love for the things of this world, they will eventually falter in their faith as they fall away from the Lord. And you might be thinking, yeah, it's not going to happen to me. I've got it together. I I can straddle the fence. Have fun. Have fun being lukewarm. You know, have fun, you know, being neither cold nor hot. You know, the kind of person that Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. The believer who continues to entertain their love for this world will falter in their faith and they will fall away until they turn away from their worldly love. And with that being the case, we must not fail to grasp the importance of maintaining our connection with other Christians at church. Much like Epaphras, who was very zealous for the people in his church, praying for them fervently. He was longing to get back home so that he could fellowship more. We ought to be like him. We ought to follow in his footsteps and and following his example. And with that, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there's four churches actually mentioned here in these verses. There's the church in Colossae, which is the church that Paul was directing this greeting towards there in verse 12, because this is the church that the letter is actually being sent to. And it's there in verse 13, where Paul also mentions the church in Laodicea, as well as the church in Aeropolis. And without debate, Paul was a, a man who recognized you know, the value of these Christian congregations. And, and, and so then there's this fourth church, and, and I'm not really sure if that's the church in Aeropolis or if the church in the house of, of Nymphus uh, was another church altogether. And so there might be three, maybe four churches uh, mentioned here. But, but regardless, it's important to understand that most of Paul's epistles were written to churches. And then there were the pastoral epistles written to a pastor of the church. And, and, you know, it's important to, to read the Bible personally and, and uh, you know, allow, that, allow the scriptures to impact us at a personal level. But it's important for us to remember that most of these epistles were written for congregations to be read by the pastor, studied in the church, and, and, and taken, you know, together. And, and with that being the case, you know, it's, it's important for us to grasp that, you know, corporate worship and Bible study is part of God's plan for us. Paul recognized the value of the Christian congregation. And, and as we consider the way that Demas ended up falling away from the faith because, you know, he loved the world. We should take a moment to consider the, the concerns that every Christian ought to have whenever we start to prefer the world to the church. 
Christian, listen, if you find your, yourself at a place where you'd rather hang out with your unbelieving friends at some secular event, if that's more exciting in your mind than showing up to church and singing praises with the people of God, it's possible that you're beginning to backslide. And if you, if you find yourself making excuses for why it's okay to stop going to church because work's more important or you know, going to the lake is more important or watching the game is more important, listen, the chances are you're following Demas out the door and back into the world. And, and it starts with baby steps, but you know, how far down that road will you go before you finally find yourself in the pig pen sleeping with the swine? that being the case, it's crucial for Christians to remember what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10. There he declares, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Christian, listen, we've not only been called to maintain our connection here with our Christian congregation, but we also ought to be holding one another accountable. When you see you know, Joe Christian or, 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 or Jane Believer, you know, disappearing from church. They haven't been here for two weeks, you know, and you know them, you got their phone number. We'll call them, encourage them, provoke them under good works, check up on them and see where they've been and how they're doing. Don't let the Demases slip through the cracks. We have to hold one another accountable by provoking one another to love and to good works. Not only that, but we should also gather together in order to spend time studying God's word. And in order to prove my point, let's look again here at Colossians chapter 4. I want to focus your attention there at verse 16. Here Paul writes, Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now here in this verse, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Colossae that they needed to show up to church so that they could read this letter together. See that it is read among you. And again, listen, you know me, I I endorse and encourage home studies, personal studies. Go home, read your Bible, study the scriptures. It's wonderful. But the the Christian says, well, I'm just going to do church at home. No, you're not. You're staying home from church. You don't do church at home. I just, you know, I just like to go out into the woods and, you know, and look at nature. Well, okay, Grizzly Adams. But that's not the church. You want to go on a nature hike, have fun. But that's not church. Church is when we gather together in our congregation and worship the Lord together and study his word together. That's what this epistle was created for, was to be studied at the church there in Colossae. And then he says, hey, send this letter over to the church in Laodicea and then get the letter that I'm sending to them and read that one over here at your church. Paul expected them to share the, their epistle with the, the church in Laodicea and vice versa. And by the end of the first century, listen, copies of all the epistles were being passed around from church to church. 
when the New Testament was finally, finally canonized, it's not like they had to get together and figure out, well, which ones are the real Bible books here? And No, no, no. They, they took what had already been accepted by the church and what had been passed around from church to church for years and years, and they said, these are the books that we've been using this whole time. But before the canonization of the New Testament, you know, the copies of these epistles were being passed back and forth from church to church as pastors of the primitive church taught the truth of God's word to their congregation. Now you might be wondering, well, what about this book of Laodicea? What happened to this letter that Paul mentions here that he sent to Laodicea? And, and as best as I can formulate the argument, here's how it goes. I don't know. I don't know. What I can say for certain is this, that if the Holy Spirit wanted the letter to the Laodiceans in the New Testament, then it would be here. How do I know that? Well, because the Holy Spirit is, you know, a third person of the Trinity and he can do whatever he wants. If the Holy Spirit wanted the letter written to the Laodicean church to be in the New Testament, it would be here. It would be here just like the letter to the church in Colossae. And so why the Holy Spirit decided to let the letter to the Laodiceans go by the wayside, I don't know. My guess is that there was content that is not applicable to the entire church age. That's, the, that's one of the things that we have to grasp about the New Testament, specifically the epistles. The epistles of the New Testament provide us with the floor plan and the foundational principles for the church age. Therefore, any letter that Paul wrote or that Peter wrote or that John wrote that had content that was not applicable to the entirety of the church age from the day of Pentecost till the rapture, anything that's not applicable to this period of time, well, it would make sense if, it, if it's not found in the New Testament, especially, the, especially the, the epistles. But again, I don't know. I don't know why the letter to the church in Laodicea is not found in the New Testament, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit decided to not include the letter to the church in Laodicea. But rather than wondering about this one letter you know, that was, that's mentioned here by Paul and is not found in the New Testament, rather than wondering what was in that one, question is, are you doing what's in all the others? Are you doing what's in the book of Colossians? Have you mastered that book yet? Have you, you know, are you 100% fulfilling what you find in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Are you walking out what you find in the book of Romans, Ephesians, Philippians? Rather than worrying a whole lot about, you know, the so-called lost books of the Bible and what was in them, and why don't you pay attention to what we do have, <laughs> the, the, the New Testament that the Holy Spirit intended us for us to have, and why don't you focus on, you know, becoming a believer who's able to walk these things out, and, and then when we get to heaven, we can be like, hey, well, so what was up with the uh, letter to the Laodiceans? Jesus will be like, you know, I spewed it out of my mouth, you know, the, it was lukewarm. Listen, let's pay attention to what we have in the New Testament. And let's, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk that out. Because this will give us the very best chance for fulfilling our ministry. With this as the goal, let's consider the final verses of this book. Beginning there at verse 17, here Paul declares, And say to Archippus, 
Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Now here in the final verses of this letter, we find Paul encouraging a a Christian named Archippus to take heed. He's saying take heed or, or pay careful attention to the ministry which the Lord had called him to accomplish. Now, we aren't given any specific details about his ministry, but what we do know is that uh, his name, Archippus, means horse master. He, he was a, a, some sort of master of horses, maybe. And so Paul was basically saying, hey, Archippus, quit horsing around. Get back to doing your ministry. We don't know what his ministry was, you know, but Paul was challenging him to become a faithful believer by fulfilling his calling in Christ. And, and as we consider this challenge, you know, I can't help but to wonder, was he beginning to waver? Was, was he beginning to grow weary of, of the ministry that he had been given? We can't say for certain. But Paul singles him out at the very end of this letter and says, hey, Don't blow it. Take heed. Be aware. Pay careful attention so that you can accomplish your calling. What about us? Are are we beginning to waver in our Christian commitment? Are, Are we beginning to falter in our calling? Is the love of the world beginning to lead us out the door like Demas? Is it possible that we might be failing to fulfill our calling in Christ even tonight? If so, then I encourage you to personalize the challenge that Paul sent to Archippus. Imagine for a moment that Paul was sending this letter here to Calvary South Austin. And then imagine that it's your name there at the end of that letter. Imagine there at the end of the letter, Paul addresses you by name. Hey, Bungie, quit blowing it. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. It's my prayer that we would all personalize this discipleship directive so that we might become those faithful servants who are, in fact, fulfilling the ministry that the Lord has called us to accomplish. You might not know this, but the Lord has called all of us to accomplish the Great Commission. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation so that we as ambassadors of heaven might go out and plead, so that we might plead with the lost and dying world to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember, every born-again believer has become the bondservant of our Savior. We are the Lord's slaves. And our chains are in Christ. And as the bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've become what Paul calls the slaves of righteousness. And as the slaves of righteousness, we must remember that our chains, which are in Christ, have actually set us free. Our chains, which are in Christ, have set us free from sin and the death of our fallen flesh. And by his chains, we have 
the promise of a resurrected life. And with that being the case, today let's walk in the newness of the life that we've received by faith in Jesus Christ so that we can, as the bondservants of Christ Jesus, fulfill the ministry that we've been given, which is the great commission of our Savior. Let's pray.